So chapter three last week, um, Matt had an interesting kind of a th- angle on it. He thought that, um, he's probably right, that Naomi maybe made a bad choice in sending Ruth to the threshing floor. Remember that whole story last week? And dressing up and uncovering Boaz's feet. And, but yet, it worked out well. It worked out well. And so chapter four picks up from that event. And so let's, uh, let's, let's dive right into it. Let's look at the first four verses. Ruth four, one through four. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close res- relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So this happens at the gate of the city. Most cities in this time were walled cities to protect them from all kinds of things. And so the way to find somebody was at the gate. Everyone had to go in and out the gate. So that's why it happens at at that place. The gate of the city was kind of like our courthouse today. It was where legal matters were were dealt with, and um, it was kind of like the title company, the courthouse, the bank. It was all happened at the gate of the city. That's that's the background for this. As you can see in verse 4, the word redeem is mentioned five times because this book is about redemption. That's the key theme of the book of Ruth. It's all about redemption. Who's going to squeaky right here? Yeah, I like that. Okay, see over here. So that's what Ruth is about. It's about redemption, the book itself. And redemption requires a, a redeemer, a goel. It's a Hebrew word, goel. It, it means it's the same Hebrew word used for kinsman and redeemer. It's the same Hebrew word. So that's often when you see the word goel, it's a kinsman hyphen redeemer. It's used like 64 times in the Old Testament. But most importantly, by far most importantly, for us particularly, Boaz is a picture of somebody. Who knows who who Boaz is a picture of? It's a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus. So let's look at the next two verses. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. It's, you know, there's a lot of culture here, and I don't understand it all. And I'm not going to try to make you understand what I don't understand, so I'll spare you that. But there's some cultural things here that we wouldn't necessarily be doing. They're they're basically talking about this this property that Naomi had sold, because she needed money. She was destitute. She had no husband. She had no sons. This, this property should, should really not have been sold, if, if at all possible. It should always stay in the family. So this kinsman 
family member, kinsman, redeemer, would purchase the land back from whoever had bought it from Naomi to keep it basically in the family. That's all that is in a, in a super simple explanation. I hope it's right. So uh, I think that's what it is. But have you ever had like a great deal going and somebody wrecks it? This guy had a great deal. He said, oh yeah, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. And maybe it was for good reasons. He might have been just a great family member. He was the closest relative to Elimelech, who was Naomi's husband, who had died in Moab. And maybe he had pure motives. I hope he did. But he also might have just said, you know, I can make some money. Property was money. This is an agrarian society. We're in an industrial society. We're sitting on top of a Spalding's mill here. Um, you could probably plant a garden there, but that would be about all you could do. This was an, we live in an industrial age. This is an agrarian age. Everything was about land and food. It's all about that. So I think this guy probably thought he could make some change owning this property. And then Boaz says, I'll take it. I'll buy it. And Boaz drops the bomb. He says, well, here's what, here's what comes with the property. Here's what you get. You get, you get Ruth, the Moabitess that I'm sure he had heard about. And, and somehow that wrecked his deal because that's what, that's what happens in life. People wreck our deal. <laughs> you know that? I'm just going to say it, man. People wreck your deal. People are always going to wreck your deal. People wrecked his deal. People are going to wreck your deal. People wrecked the Garden of Eden. Throughout the Bible, what's, what's the main problem throughout the Bible? It's with with people because people wreck our deal and guess what it's never going to change so you might as well just somehow figure out how to how to work with that people people that shouldn't wreck your deal whatever your deal is are going to wreck your deal sometimes husbands wreck the wife's deal and the wife wrecks the husband's deal so to speak this thing that he wants to do or she wants to do it's always going to be that way and you can get all upset if you want, but here's the truth of the matter. You're wrecking some people's deal too because you're a people too, right? People wreck your deal. Well, guess what? You're wrecking somebody else's deal because you're a people just like those people that wreck yours. That's what happened. So his deal was wrecked, so to speak, by Ruth. By, uh, yeah, by Ruth. And people are messy. I, I know it, they're messy, but you know what? People are wonderful. They're messy, yeah, Relationships with people is hard to figure out sometimes. It's messy, but people are wonderful. And if that's your mindset, you're going to do well with the messiness of people around you that sometimes mess up your world. People are wonderful, but they're messy. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. Now, it was a custom. Now, it was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilean's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, moreover Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witness of this today. 
Back in this day, uh, you know, cultures are different. Cultures do weird things. I don't know. It seems kind of weird to me. You'd, I don't know, man. Here's, I'm, I'm making a deal with you, so I'm going to give you my shoe. I don't know. It's just weird. But so, so in that day, it was a sandal, the confirmed transaction. In our day, it's a signature, you know. Wasn't too long ago, I was at, I was, my wife and I were looking to buy a piece of property. So I went to the real estate office to put, uh, I don't know, $1,000 or something as earnest money on this property to kind of hold it for a few weeks for us to look at it. We didn't end up buying the property. But um, it's, it's a little more complicated now than sandals. It's, I was about half, I mean, I was almost unconscious halfway through signing that, you know, it's page after page. It's just an earnest money agreement. And nobody reads it, right? I mean, tell me honestly, who reads that stuff? Just where's the line? Where's, there it is, initial, signature, initial date, signature. About halfway through, I'm going for my shoe. I'm just saying, here, bro, just take the shoe, man. If that'll work, take the shoe. I'm not going to sign the rest of these things. I think they're, they're brilliant. But... Here's the thing I want to take from this little, this little section. What's, what's more important than your signature? It's here. It's your word. That's more important. Nowadays, it's a signature, not a sandal. I get it. But, but what's more important than that is your word. The Bible says in, in Matthew 5.37, Jesus would say this, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil ones. And so as Christians, we're, we're Christians, that means little Christ. That's what the word means, little Christ. We're to be people of the word, of the word and of the word. Our word should be our bond. If it was a Christian, if it was a Christian entering the deal, and most of you, I pray all of you are Christians, your word is everything. And I don't know that that's so true today. I don't know, I know that's not necessarily true outside the church, that's why I have these gigantic legal documents, but inside of the church, your word should be your bond. If you say you will do something, you will, you'll perform that. If we really live like that, we'd probably say a little bit less, <laughs> wouldn't we? I mean, if we were thought, okay, if I say I'm gonna be there at this time, if I say I'm gonna do that thing, it's my bond, good to see you. Your word is your bond. That's the way it should be whether the culture gets it or not, even to your own hurt. Even to your own hurt. A promise is a promise is a promise is a promise. And the Bible is all about promise and covenant. If Jesus was on the cross, and he was, and he said, it is finished, and it wasn't, ooh, oh, what would that mean to you and to me? It would be potential disaster. What he said, even to his dying breath, was the absolute gospel truth. It is finished. He paid for all sin, for all men, and for all women, for all time. It was finished. His word was his bond, and we all go, amen. Lord, thank you for that. Now he says, now you'd be like me. Your word is your bond. It's super, super important, and it's something I think we do well to think about from time to time, maybe a little more than we do. Let's keep reading. Verse 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, 
We are witnesses. And then listen to this. I love this. The Lord, they say this. The Lord make the woman who was coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathra, whatever that is, and be famous in Bethlehem. <clears throat> may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So, so right after the deal is transacted and the sandals given and the elders are, the 10 elders are watching all this and the people are watching, people are going in on the gate are watching it, no doubt. They speak this blessing into Boaz. They say this really beautiful thing to him. And it, it may be kind of random to you and maybe kind of random to me. It's not the kind of blessing necessarily that when you sneeze, right, someone says what? Bless you. I, I never have figured that one out. I don't do that. And it still surprises me to this day if I sneeze, you know, from the next aisle over there, you know, Fred Meyer, bless you. I'll, okay, I'll take it. But it's not that kind of a blessing. It's more thoughtful than that, a little more personal than that. But I think the blessing is super powerful. And I think we've downgraded it as kind of repetition, kind of vain repetition almost. But it doesn't have to be. The blessing's, the blessing's amazing. Listen to what the Bible says. And I love this verse. I speak about it often. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it lead its fruit. Proverbs 16, 24. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. And they are. Proverbs 12, 25. Anxiety in the heart. Listen to this. Anxiety in the heart of a man causes depression. But a good word makes it glad. Do you, do I, do we speak blessing to people? It's not hard. Whatever that looks like to you. I'm not going to tell you what to say. I don't think you always say the same thing. But do you have an attitude in your heart that says, I just, I want to be a person because words are powerful and I can create life and death. I can, I can do all kinds of things through this tongue. Are you a person that says, yeah, I, I want to be a blessing giver? I think there's room for that this day. In an increasingly hopeless world where words are bitter and brutal at times, a blessing spoken to somebody is powerful. It really is. Because not only it changes their world, but I think God takes the blessing and I think he touches it. And he magnifies it. It may feel like five loaves and two fishes of words. <laughs> but given to God... Anything can get multiplied. And I want to be that person. I think I'm, oh, I'm doing okay there, but I want to do better. I want to be a person that just speaks. And it's not just blessing to somebody. Maybe if you flip the coin over, I think it's, do you speak blessing about people? That's, that's even the more interesting one. It'd be easy for me to say to people that I love, man, just Lord bless you. Uh, whatever I would come up with as a blessing. But when I'm talking about that person to somebody who might have a different perspective of my friend, so to speak, when I continue to speak blessing, it's perhaps more important then. What do you say about people when those people aren't around? Do you still speak blessing? That's what these folks did. And all I know is this chapter ends super, super cool because I think of the blessing. I love that. I want to be that kind of a person. Let's look at the last section. Um, 
verses uh, 13 through 22. Finish off this, this chapter here. May your house, I'm sorry, 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and she became a nurse to him. First time I read that, I remember the first time I read that. I didn't read it very carefully, like years ago. I said, I thought it said she began to nurse him and I thought, that's messed up. But it doesn't say that, and became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor woman, women, sorry, gave him a name saying, there is a a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, who is the father of who? David. (laughs) Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. I mean, so this book, I mean, Naomi is really the Job, the female Job of the Old Testament. This thing ends well. It did for Job, you remember. Things were restored to Job. It turns out well. Naomi, Ruth, and the land are redeemed by Boaz. Ruth has a baby boy, Obed. Naomi becomes a G-maw, which is awesome. Who doesn't want to be a G-maw? That's cool. And Ruth will be King David's great-grandmother, if you can fathom that. The Moabitess woman becomes King David's great-grandmother. So what do you take away from the book of Ruth? We finished the chapter. I have two things I just want you to think about. And then we'll have some ice cream. Two takeaways. There could be 50 takeaways. These are just my takeaways. And I'm just going to explain them to you the best I can. It won't take but a second. You might have some different takeaways, and that's perfect. I hope you do. Number one, restoration. Number two, redemption. Number one. The big takeaway for me is restoration. And then number two, we'll talk about in a couple minutes, redemption. Restoration. There's a little sign in the front yard of a house up the street. And the sign, it's just a little sign. I should have taken a picture of it and done it up here. Just a little sign. But it just says this, never give up. Never give up. I don't know how long the sign's been there. It's just up my street. But I see that little sign, and it has such a big message. Never, never give up. If you're going to want to be restored, and I hope you do, because we all at times need to move towards restoration in some way, never give up. It all starts with that. Here's a clip from somebody who says it better than me. Thank you.
Who is that guy? Churchill. Highly thought of. You guys see that movie? Did you see that movie about him not too long ago? Who saw that? If you have not seen that movie, Darkest Hour, I don't know what it's called. Anybody know? Is that right? The Darkest Hour? You got to check it out. It's amazing about his life. Super, super, super well done. But Winston Churchill said that, and he's, he's kind of a hero. He's kind of one of my heroes. Never give in. Never give up. We'll fight. Remember that whole thing he talked about? I spared you all that part of it. And all I can say about Naomi is somehow in her despair, she didn't give in to it. Somehow. She came back bitter. I'm not going to pretend she didn't. In fact, she gave herself a different name, Mara, bitter. I, I know that. But she still came back. There was enough in her. Something was enough in her to leave Moab, where she could have just died in her despair, and she made it back to Bethlehem. And I, and I love that about her. And I don't know what she expected. I have no idea what she expected. None. And when she left Moab, she was leaving what was the best part of her life. She was, in a sense, leaving her husband and her two sons behind, in a sense. They're dead bodies, unfortunately. But, but she came back because God took her tragedy without her knowing how it would turn out. And he turned it into triumph because that's what God does. That's what God does. When the lame, when the deaf, when the leprous, when the demon-possessed, when everybody but the dead, (laughs) in their despair, in their hopelessness, in their Moab, somehow fought their way to Jesus. And if you were a leper, you would have to fight your way there. You didn't want to be out in the crowds. It was terrible in that culture to be a leprous person. They fought their way to him. And he did amazing things. That's what he wants to do for all of us, I believe. So here's the thing. If you're in a Moab situation, and if you're not, you could be soon enough. And if you're not, and if you're not soon enough, you're going to know somebody who are in a Moabish situation. Kind of captured. You can always start your journey tonight to Bethlehem. You can always start your journey tonight. That's one of the big takeaways of the book. Restoration. Bethlehem, the house of bread, is awaiting your return. Oh, but I've been gone from Bethlehem for 10 years. I've lost everything. Yeah, I know. Yeah. The prodigal son figured it out. Remember that story? He was out there. Now, those weren't, with Naomi, the decisions that affected her that kind of brought Moab into her heart were probably decisions that her husband made, right? Let's leave here. Let's go to Moab where there's food. I don't know what she thought. The Bible doesn't say what she thought about that decision, but she followed him. But for many, we get into Moab because of our own choices. <laughs> the prodigal, he, he created Moab in a pig pen, and he came back. So sometimes we put ourselves in Moab, and maybe that's you tonight. Sometimes, in a sense, other people put us in Moab. Other people's decisions, other people's deaths. You have a loved one die? <laughs> she had three that, you can be in Moab so fast, you don't even know how you got there. In some place so far away from what you were and what you had. So, the thing about tonight is, you're not stuck. 
You are not stuck in Moab. That's, that's restoration. The book of, of Ruth is about restoration. You don't have to stay there. You never give in. <laughs> never give in to despair. Never give up on hope. You never, ever, ever have to stay in Moab. It's, Bethlehem's 50 miles away. You can walk there in a couple days. So here's just two keys to restoration. Two keys. There, maybe there's 20 keys. I just want two of them to talk about just for a second. So if you're saying tonight, or maybe you'd want to share this with somebody that you know, if they're a believer, this would be to the believer, that's somehow made his way, her way to Moab. A couple keys for restoration. Number one is you, you start gleaning and you don't stop. If you want to be restored, I think the book of Ruth says you got to glean. When she got to Bethlehem, which is tough, the first thing she did is she sent out, Naomi sent out Ruth to glean. They were hungry. They needed food. It all started with gleaning. Gleaning is really important. I talked about that a couple weeks ago. So gleaning in this book put Ruth in a place where she could be restored. It positioned her for restoration. It positioned her on Bo- in Boaz's field. It wasn't happenstance. It was, it was a God thing. It didn't just happen. And so what am I talking about for you? This is for all of us, but particularly for you that might be a little closer to Moab tonight than you want to be. This is where you glean, right here. This is where you start the gleaning process and you never stop. (laughs) Do you, do I, do we glean from God's word daily? There's nothing more powerful than God's word. It's living. The Bible says about the Bible, that, that God's word is, is, is living. It's like it's breathing. Every book you have that you have at home, let's say, in a bookshelf, it's a book. It's, it's glue and paper and type, and it's just what it is. The Bible is living. If you could look at it, if you could look at it in the way the Bible would describe itself, it would be like it's... That's this book. There's no book like it. It just does, it just breathes when you don't look. Peek around the corner and see. That's what it does. The word of God is alive. It's breath, it's living breath. It's the same breath that that went into Adam and made him a living soul, made him a living being, a human. So it's 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 alive. When I, was, when I became a pastor, it was 1999. I've told you this story before. I'm going to tell you it again. I'm going to tell you before I die a few more times. 1999, I'm a pastor at Applegate Christian Fellowship. I'm totally convinced John Corson made a terrible mistake, but he's asked me to come on the pastoral staff, and I am, I said yes, but I really feel out of place. So I go to my first pastor's meeting. And, I, and I'm with these guys that I so respected, these other pastors that I'd been around as a congregant for years, and they're just like high-power guys who get on the radio, they teach, they worship, like big-time Christian guys. And now I'm, I guess I'm one of them. And so, and so John, he, he goes around the circle, and, and so they're also, we're sitting in the prayer room, and there's a pretty big staff. There must be 15 16, 17 of us pastors, huge pastoral staff, just some stellar guys. And I sat 
I sat next to John so he couldn't look at me. So I sat right next to him. There was a chair. But John came in. I sat so he was looking at everybody else. He couldn't look at me. I thought, well, that's a good start. And he went around the circle. And he went to each guy, named him by name. And he said, here's the thing. Here's the thing, Jim, Jim Wright, or Ab, Ab Sumrall, or Greg, or Greg Eckler. He'd name their names. Rick, Rick Cohen. He'd go around. He said, here's the thing. Here's the main thing. Here's the one thing you cannot forget as a pastor. You can't, if you lose this, you're going to fade. And, but he wouldn't say what it was. And then he'd go to the next guy. He'd say the same thing, go to the next guy. He went all the way around, came to me. I was the last guy hiding out there. And uh, he says, Mark, it's your first pastor's meeting. It's so important that you grab this. And I think, okay, he's got one thing. It's my first meeting, there's just one thing. I can remember one thing. Just, if it was two things, I don't know what would happen. One thing I can remember. And he said, it's your personal, private, devotional life. If you lose that as a pastor, if your studying of God's word is always to teach something and not just a personal, private, devotional life. In other words, your, your, your devotional life is somewhere where you're not teaching. If you might be teaching, that's fine. But I'm not going to have my devotions in Ruth because if I did have my devotions in Ruth, I know what would happen. I'd be there and I'd go, oh, that would teach. That would teach. That, oh, that would right there would teach. That's what would happen. That was happening to me anyway. I think it would happen to them too. It's your personal, private, devotional life. Do you have a personal, private, devotional life? If you're not gleaning from God's word, I do not know how you're going to fuel restoration. I don't know how you're going to do it. This is, this is alive. It's not like the other books. It breathes when you don't see it. And it's waiting to, to feed our spirit and our souls. That's what you should have. You should, you should have a personal, private, devotional life. Psalm 119, 40, 147, David said this, I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your word. <laughs> David, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Remember the story in Exodus 16 of manna? Remember that whole story? They were, their Moab was Egypt. And their Bethlehem would be the promised land. And, and, what, and what did God say? He says, every morning, every morning when the dew lifts, something's going to be on there for you, to, for you to, to feed you. Bodily, no doubt. It's what sustained them in the desert, manna. It's bread-like whatever. But for us... This is the manna for us. It's God's word. Are you out every morning grabbing it? It's the key to restoration, I think. It's gleaning from the manna. And number two, two keys to restoration. And this is a little harder to explain, but I think it's just as important. It's not just gleaning. It's let God surprise you. If you want to be restored, if you're in a Moabite state, heading that direction or buried in Moab somehow, I think the second thing is you've got to let God surprise you. You've got to let God surprise you. Because if you want to be restored, he's probably going to restore your life in a way you are not thinking. <laughs> he's going to surprise you. Why? Because he's God. The Bible says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. 
God's going to surprise you if you want to be restored. He surprised Naomi with grain. He surprised Naomi with Boaz. (laughs) Surprised Naomi with redemption of her property. So if you want restoration, you've got to, I think, you've got to do something that's important. You've got to be willing to say, my life, it's okay, God. If If I move away from Boab to wherever you have for me, it's okay if it's different than it was. Restored doesn't mean it's going to look like it did because that doesn't always happen. In fact, it's probably not going to happen. When God restores you, he's going to surprise you. It's going to look way different than you thought. Better or worse, I can't answer that, but different. And I think it'll be a tailor-made restoration for you personally. I don't know what Naomi expected as she moved towards restoration, but what she got was amazing. I don't think she a better story. I don't think she could have written a better story for herself. And that's what God will do for you. He wants to surprise you. So you got to quit thinking that your life has to look like it did. It's going to be better. When God created man, the man, the first man, what did he use? Dirt. Dirt. He just took the dust of the earth and he made his prized possession out of dirt. And in the idea of restoration, that's normally about all we have to offer God. <laughs> when we've been in Moab long enough, we're dirty. He goes, perfect, I'm so good with dirt. I am so good with dirt. Just give me your dirt and let me build you, maybe rebuild you in a way you, you couldn't have imagined. Let God surprise you. He can re- re- recreate. And the second thing, the second takeaway for me, and it's the obvious one, is redemption. There's only one who can purchase your redemption, and that is our Boaz, right? Jesus Christ. He's done that on the cross. He traded his life for yours. The Bible says that in redeeming us, he took all of my bad, all of your bad, all of our bad, whatever God would call bad, not just what I would call bad, because that's a, that's, that's a moving scale. <laughs> but what God would call evil, what God would call sin, he took all that, upon himself, on the cross, it's finished, and he exchanges it for something. He gives you something back, one for one. He takes all of our bad, and he gives us all of his good. Can you fathom that? Can you fathom that? God took all of my bad, and he said, here's what I'm giving you in exchange. And I'm thinking, I know what it's going to be. It's going to be a spanking. No, it's going to be all my good. I'm giving you my righteousness for your dirt. <laughs> it's redemption. It's the story of Ruth. That's what Boaz did, but in a minuscule way compared to what Jesus did for us. And in, 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 in the book of Ruth, she she left Moab, right? And she came to, to Bethlehem. I don't know what she was hoping for, restoration, I suppose. But probably surprised by redemption. That's how the story of Ruth unfolds. The book of Ruth, I should say. But for us, <laughs> we'd, we didn't even leave Moab. We didn't even know we were in Moab. And he came for us. Naomi, Ruth, they left Moab to a better place. When we were dead in our sins, 
When we, when we were so deep into Moab, so used to Moab, so comfortable with Moab, he died for us. When we weren't looking, when we weren't asking, when we weren't seeking, when we didn't even know where we lived, he knew where we lived and he redeemed us. That's the book of Ruth. I asked you a couple weeks ago, did Boaz love her from the get-go, from the first time he saw her gleaning in the field, or was he just a really, really, really good guy? And wisely, most of you don't raise your hands, because I know know what Heverly is. You always got to be like, I don't know that one, man. I'm a pastor, and I'm going, oh, I do not know the answer on that, man. I am burying my hands. So the ones that did raise, about half of you that did raise your hands said he fell in love with her. About half of you said he was just a really, really good man for all that were willing to weigh in. I'm always easier to weigh in on. It's all right. And I think of Jesus. I don't know what Boaz's heart was. I really don't. But I do know our Redeemer's heart. And he's both. (laughs) He's a really, 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 really good God. And he really, really, really loves you. That fuels his redemption, his desire to redeem us. And he's made a way, him being the way, for us to not only live in heaven for eternity, but to live in my heart today. That's a big deal. That's a game changer. Not just heaven for eternity, but in my heart heart today. It's redemption. It's a story of Ruth. It's a story of your life and mine. So this is how I want to end this up tonight. I don't know where you're at. I have a hard enough time figuring out where I'm at most of the time. But I have to believe that there are some of you tonight that are just saying, man, I am, I am like Naomi, man. I am, I'm in Moab. I'm either heading there or I'm buried in that thing. And I don't want to live there. There's better. There's hope. Well, I'd say never give in, never give up. That's important. But I think think that the thing that you need tonight is you need prayer. You just need to be prayed for. That God would encourage you to take the journey home. It's never too late in God's economy. And so all I want to do is I want you to be bold enough to raise your hand. You don't have to stand up, though. I want you to say, that's probably me. I'm probably that guy. I'm probably that gal. I'm probably a little more stuck in Moab in ways that you don't have to explain to anybody, me included. And I just want to be prayed for tonight. That's all I want you to do is raise your hand, and then a few people around you are going to lay their hands on you, and I'm going to pray that God does something to motivate you and he can and he will because we're going to ask him to and I believe he will. He wants you out of Moab more than you know. If that's you, just raise your hand a little bit. Go ahead. Don't be shy. There's more Moabites in here than you know and I've been a Moabite more of my life than I want to tell you probably. Go ahead and raise them a little higher. Good, good. So if someone's around you with a raised hand, closely just lay your, lay your hand on their shoulder they don't need to say anything, and I'm just going to pray. Someone's near, just lay your hand, good. Lay your hand on people. That, there you go, good. Thank you for getting up. I appreciate that. Everybody should be touched. It's all about community.
So Jesus, I just know, and the book of Ruth, I think, confirms it for all of us that we don't have to live in Moab, that there's a better life outside of that place. And Lord, I don't know where and why some of my brothers are in Moab or would describe themselves that way tonight. But I know this, I've been there. Man, I've been there. And people have prayed for me and, and, and I've returned to the house of bread, to Bethlehem. And so Jesus, I pray that tonight would be a turning point. Tonight would be a night of return. Tonight would be the first step in that journey back to, to family, to, to, to our heritage in Christ, to our freedom, to our family, to our ancestry, to our community. Most importantly, Lord, to you. So Jesus, would you tonight encourage in ways that you can only encourage, Lord? Would you motivate? Would you, Lord, speak into the hearts of my brothers and sisters that there is hope, that they're never to give in to despair, never to give up on hope, because there's a short journey back, shorter than we know, shorter than the devil would tell us, back to Bethlehem. So bless them. Encourage them. Set them free, Lord. And I pray, Jesus, that they would be okay with maybe Bethlehem looking a little bit different than it did when they left. That's the way you work. You always surprise us. May we be content with that. May we find joy in that even. So, Lord, tonight we just thank you for this book. Thank you for each person here. As we delight ourselves in fatness, Lord, tonight, we just look forward to good fellowship and meeting again soon. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless y'all.